Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It... I'm Iron Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel of Easttown. <laughs> I'm Aida Osman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I still have not seen that. I've been traveling. I've been traveling. I was wondering if you did, because we would so be talking about it if you were. Um, yeah. Guys, gay Twitter will tell you this, but Kate Winslet finally feeding us for the first time in, I'll say, a decade. Mm. I mean, I'm not a Steve Jobs fan, but <laughs> this show, if I would describe it as a beach read. I'm talking about Mayor of Easttown, which you can watch all of on uh, HBO Max. There's one episode left to go. But it's just like, okay, a fun small-town mystery. There's a murder, etc. And then Kate Winslet, with this like masterfully done Philly accent, really feels like just a kind of downtrodden, woman who kind of accepts that life will be brutal every day and she doesn't really have a reaction to that and for some reason it is mesmerizing i can't explain why Mm. she's so good so i'm just gonna say it's so great to see kate winslet be great again and the memories of things like labor day or wonder wheel or whatever the hell she was doing in the divergent franchise just fade away (laughs) shout out to mildred pierce though where she did eat you mean we're back to sexy Kate Winslet, you know, fucking teen Nazis. What a weird movie. And a Best Picture nominee, (laughs) The Reader. Anyway, strange choice, everybody. Uh, I will definitely catch up. Obviously, yes, I've been traveling. Uh, I was in New York. Uh, I'm back home. Now I can actually watch that. I need to watch um, Hacks as well. Mm, uh, Mm Because I'm friends with uh, Paul Downs and Luciana Anello and Jen Statsky. So... Uh, I need to catch up on a bunch of things. Uh, there was no time to... Re- HBO Max... Yeah, that girl. Just in, in, not inundating really, Not us. really good for... <laughs> it is that girl, but not really good for um, trying to watch on devices in hotel rooms. Right, right, right. Mm. I've had that same problem because Pause by Sam J came out. That damn Michael Che, which I had to watch for my own... Like, you know, I wanted to hate on something. But all those black <laughs> comedians are giving us so much content... And um, Z-Way, Z-Way's doing it. Mm-hmm. I love the title of the Michael Che show because every uh, time you say it, you can express your feelings. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, if you want to <laughs> shove how rebellious you are down my throat even more, like, oh, my show's called mm-hmm. That Damn Michael Che. Like, we get it. You're, you're irreverent. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that you say the word irreverent because I was just hearing somebody describe the comedy of Patty Harrison, who is just in that movie with Ed Helms when we had him on a couple weeks ago. And she is like a wild comic. Here's a word I hate, but it's true. Chaotic, if you read her Twitter. (laughs) But like irreverent. More than chaotic. I feel like there's always a bomb under a table when you're talking to her. Yeah, right. When I met Patty, (laughs) I walked into the writer's room and she had drawn a yellow M&M with a gaping asshole. Just that's the entire thing. She was drawing that casually at the table. So that is the level of of comedy that Patty gives us. (laughs) But I feel like irreverent is a word we used to use to describe things like 
Monty Python or the original SNL, and now it feels like it barely even applies to comedy nowadays because everybody is so strange and everybody is so Mm. um, (laughs) out there. So I'm wondering if we need to update our vernacular. Mm. I know. I think now to be irreverent would actually to be docile and kind. Be like, you're going against the grain. (laughs) Yeah. No, you have to be like Bob Newhart. (laughs) Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love going against the grain, going insane, going mad. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm I'm just singing rant. Oh, <laughs> which is maybe the sixth best song in that musical. Mm. Speaking of strange, mm-hmm. y'all, it is Gemini season, and I'm feeling it. <laughs> I am feeling it. First of all, that is my rising sign. So, uh, I just every time we talk about astrology, I'm just I look at Lewis. I'm so worried. I'm worried about what he's going to think. I don't know what's going on. I'm just terrified. They're all my narcolepsy sign. I literally tune out immediately. <laughs> He goes fully catatonic. (laughs) (laughs) To explain to you what Gemini season means, it means that things like Taika Waititi, Rita Ora, and Tessa Mm. Thompson Mm. having public makeout (laughs) sessions, like... In the fucking morning. Loved it. Ooh, loved it. Smoke <laughs> a, a cigarette after I have my two mixed girls. That's it. Period. That is that, ooh, the party went late. It is the early morning hours. We're smoking a cig. Yes. The yes. drugs might be wearing off. You know, I'm wearing a denim shirt. Your system, <laughs> and you're like, I'm horny. <laughs> wait, so wait. Is that literally when they took the picture? It's like, it, was, it was in the morning following a night? Yeah. It's, it seemed to be. Mm-hmm. We're talking about paparazzi photos showing Taika Waititi and Tessa Thompson and Rita Ora together, like enjoying a three-way smooch. It, what looks yeah. like a sort of, they're sitting in chairs behind railings that almost makes them look like they're at like some cheap breakfast place or something. Mm-hmm. All three of those people kind of seem like they're pretty funny. I wonder if they were just setting it up for the paparazzi. Mm. I will all, say, uh, yeah, that too. That I've met Taika twice. Uh, the first time was when I profiled him for GQ, and uh, the man was playing just like sort of you know like Br- British punk rock music, at like nine in the morning, mm-hmm. and poured some Jameson into a coffee cup. Wow, my baby, that's drinking. my baby right there. <laughs> I'm like, that is a man. That is a man, and also. I'm sorry, Lewis. He's a Leo. Okay. I don't mm. feel one way or the other about that. Great. That's all three of us. He is us, Lewis. I also met Taika. I was I was the third woman. I was. I was in the bathroom. Okay. Just getting, getting a lighter. Getting a lighter for Taika. The little Kim so uh, in this Lady Marmalade. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Why her? Why gotta be that one? Damn. Lewis. <laughs> mm. You know, Leo's act up in any season. But Gemini season... Uh, Kimberly Drew and I were talking about this last night. Once something in the air with Gemini season, it gets sort of hot, it's sticky out. That's when Leo start acting up, okay? That mm-hmm. is why Benifer is back right mm. now during Gemini season because there are two Leos Clicking. who are chaotic. Yes. J-Lo's a Leo? Yes. J-Leo. I didn't know that. Yes, baby. And Ben Affleck is a Leo as well, an August Leo. Mm. A-Rod was a July Leo. Ooh, and that's why she had to dump Therein it. lies the difference. If you're going to be born in July, just be a Cancer and go, girl. Like, <laughs> we don't, we don't. Okay, first of all. Are you a July? Leave me, leave me alone. Are you a July? On, July, on July 28th. Oh, you're barely there. I mean, really, that's all arbitrary to me, that part. Barely but, there. But... We're having fun. Yeah. This is the same season where, like, I went outside for the first time in months and ran into like every lover from the past two years. So I'm not going outside again. Oh, I'm not going outside again. 
Mm-mm, we're inside. How very Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. Mm-hmm. Who remembers that movie? Mm-hmm. Okay. B- baby, the streets are hot, okay? I just want to point out the irony in my roommate coming on here a couple weeks ago saying that he wanted a, you know, like a, like a host summer. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. But baby, it was me. <laughs> the hoe the hoe was right there the whole time yeah the, the whole time i like you talked about running into excess aida part of the problem is going back to new york when you used to live there right mm, not relapsing i feel like on every fucking street corner someone is every second street corner someone is lurking and if they're not lurking to look for me they want to tell me uh how much they're in love with louis vertel you know what? This is the cross you have to bear. I'm sorry. You associate yourself with me. I mean, Listen, I was at many parties where a man was like, Louis Vertel, let me tell you about that. And you know what? I was happy for you. Can you start hanging out with some straight people so I can get attention too? <laughs> huh? Yes, I'll start hanging you... out with some people. Yes. Thank you. Um, Thank you. At the fucking airport on the way here, I run into a boy who was like, Louis Vertel, you know what he is? Mm. He's the perfect package. He's hot. He, he really has is. a job, and he's funny. <laughs> oh, no encyclopedic knowledge of game shows. That's not what they bring. No. Up? Oh, okay. Damn it. No. Damn. I'll tell you who the person is after the show, but they they don't they don't care about game shows. Yes. God damn it. Mm. Well, I mean, that's my cross to bear. There's something to celebrate. I had my first keep it recognition outside at a dinner last night and i okay i did a lot of basking in it i really did i really really did so damn baby were you at catch were you at catch with lizzo i was at oh girl i I was at bakari (laughs) west adams don't know what i was doing in west adams was meeting the director for the new show and someone was just gawking at me and smiling and they wanted to talk about you two more than they wanted to talk about me but that's something i'm healing from still so (laughs) girl get used to it okay they never run into the one they want to (laughs) see I, not to dwell on this, but I have to say, when somebody does come up to like me or one of us, uh, it's extra flattering because, again, you can't fucking see us. So it's like, oh, you've done the research mm. to even know what we look like. So in a way, mm. I... Uh, it, well, it's, a lot of them know it's from Snapchat, Lewis. Oh, that's true. Which oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in my mid-30s, so legally I can't understand what that is. We are burning up the Snapchat charts. And listen, we will talk about... I love how all of this is appropriate for today's episode because first of all we're going to talk about the teens olivia rodrigo's new album sour we're going to get into it i'm so excited all the way into it uh we're also going to talk about the drama surrounding uh critical race theory and nicole hannah jones because white people are always mad Mm -hmm. um but our guest this week is a Gemini queen with a new memoir out who talks about being a Gemini in her book. So it is only appropriate that we kick off Gemini season with Juliana Margulies. Come on, Emmys. <laughs> Truly. A winner. Truly. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and now she is looking for a now she is looking for an award with this book. God it damn is it. truly moving. It is truly moving. One of the better celebrity memoirs I've read in the past few years. Uh, also, by the way, I'll, I will bring this up before we have her on. One of the great speaking voices on television. Juliana Margulies' mm. voice just lulls you right in. I, 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 wonder if, I wonder if her voice is responsible for ER being that popular. Because you just can't turn away from that lovely voice. Mm. That is, I mean, she was mostly the one who talked in The Good Wife. And mm-hmm. it's just like, it is such a comfortable rhythm yes. to be in. And I wonder, yeah, I wonder if they wrote to like the meter of 
of her voice. Like iambic and stuff? <laughs> yeah, pentameter for sure. Yeah, margaletic pentameter. <laughs> I can't wait to hear this interview back and listen to how you guys tone your voice to match hers. Juliana, um, how are you doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome to Keep It. My usual I painful Iago from Aladdin squawking will be changed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Let's get it started. We'll be right back. On Friday, Disney star and soon-to-be household name Olivia Rodrigo released her debut album, Sour, to universally sweet praise. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We were not ready. We're not ready. What did we think of the album? This is a massive debut, and and not just because Mm. of the quality of it. This is... It's truly been a minute since a new pop star debuted with this much fanfare. Yeah. Immediately, right out the gate, like from their debut single. Yeah, it's the only debut album where two singles have debuted at number one. So Mm -hmm. in in an era where it feels like the last album I bought was still The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, it's shocking that there can be fanfare about an album. Mm, I have been listening to To Zion lately. Oh, really? I do love that song. It's really beautiful. <laughs> Carlos, Carlos Santana's on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we can talk about that another time. Uh, here's the thing. I do like the album, even though it has five specific things I don't like. And here, are, <laughs> here they are. Oh, Praise God. Myself. Here we go. <laughs> Not a list, bitch. Not a, a list. list. <laughs> and here we go with the five things Louis Vertel hates to hear on an album. Let's go. David Letterman, top 10 fanfare. Number one. <laughs> The sleepy, moody, lethargic girl vocals that have taken over the music industry for the past six years. And by that, like, I call it Zanny Lennox, where we're just sitting here listening and you sound waterlogged. And it's just not a pure vocal. Like, you're trying, you're like establishing a character instead of just singing, and it bothers me. Okay. Second thing, there are like five of the same song where it's like somebody's so pretty and I'm so sad. Okay, great. The lyrics are okay. It feels a little bit like a grown-up writing YA about how they think a teenager thinks, and I know she just wrote it with one other person, but it felt a little bit like Riverdale to me, some of the angst of the album. But otherwise, the up-tempo stuff, like Brutal, the first track, fabulous. Mm. It reminds me of my favorite 2000s band, The Veronicas. Oh, wow. I forgot about The Veronicas. Boy, was that even a five things? (laughs) It was four. (laughs) Girl, I didn't know how many things there were. Girl, if you kind of keep it with a list, Uh -uh. you better have a list. You better complete the list. You better complete the fucking list. No, give us two more things you don't like on albums, Lewis, right now. <laughs> they will roll out as the conversation happens organically. <laughs> gradually, gradually. These are the hit singles. The album rollout is coming. Okay, cool. Thanks for reminding me about the Veronicas. The Veronicas is a great comparison. Mm-hmm. Yes, girl, untouched. I'm feeling so untouched. <laughs> Leave me alone, my favorite Veronica song. Oh, mine is When It All Falls Apart. Mm. That's the one I was trying to think of right now. That's kind of a deeper cut, honestly, but that song is, ooh, I'm going back. That reminds me, though, the Veronica's, this, I'm so happy Olivia Rodrigo has decided to go the pop punk rock girly mm-hmm. direction because we have this happening at the same time as Transparent Soul dropping with Willow Smith. So that already felt like it had lit a fire. Yes, yes, listen. Yes. We will point out that that song is it, okay? It's the one. 
It is the one. It is the one. And also, it's giving me... We haven't had a rock girl. I, I grew up on Avril Lavigne. Mm -hmm. Let It Go was an album. I just held it so dearly to my heart. And I think also of like Taylor Momsen, who we know is Jenny mm -hmm. Humphrey on Gossip Girl, but was also in The Pretty Reckless and gave us mm -hmm. so much moody, eyeliner-filled, grunge-filled... The Donnas. You know, the Donnas, sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. We're back. He's giving me that debut album, to be honest. Uh, a little less rocky. I will say also that um, Transparent Soul, one aside, uh, my niece, um, when I was home for Mother's Day, was like, she's 14. She was like, I, I like, I'm really into this song. I was not what I usually listen to, but, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh my God, this is just like when I went through my rock phase at 14. <laughs> I was nice to see it happening again. But uh, I think the album was great. Mm -hmm. And I will address Lewis's points one by one. <laughs> First, I'm going to leave the room. <laughs> we talked about this when we talked about the new Billy song, Your Power. I like that the girls are giving you like, get out, the, the, like the moody music. They're giving you operatic. They're giving you, you know, like singing about their feelings. It feels, you know, like, like I, I compared it to Feist before. It's sort of what Taylor has moved into doing without trying to chase pop trends. And it seems that they're just sort of like, she's just got her guitar and I would rather this than, like, the white boys I went to high school with, like, pulling out their guitar and singing Yesterday again. <laughs> True. No, I feel like it's not that I am against mood-setting music, but I feel like they're all mm -hmm. going for the same mood. Like, I don't feel mm. like it's a verse, that, like, like, the Billy to Olivia to mm. even, like, people like Ellie Goulding years ago. It, like, it feels mm -hmm. like we're stuck in this, like, really viscous emotional puddle place and another thing oh, i just thought of another thing that bothers me are you ready oh here we go finally four number four the washington post <laughs> in their headline said compared it to jagged little pill oh and i feel like people are often very facile about that where when alanis morissette came out and she comes up a lot because she has a uh you know a, a debut that was that startling but something specific about her that caught on was how weird and idiosyncratic she was. Mm -hmm. Like, she as a personality was like, she's my best friend and yet somebody I've never quite met before. Whereas Olivia Rodrigo, to me, feels like a high school character on a TV show in a good way, full of emotions. Mm -hmm. But I've seen it before also. Mm -hmm. I will say that I think that she initially brought up those comparisons because she was vibing with that album. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but well, it makes sense because she came through the Disney machine, yes? Totally. You know, like, and she came through the Disney machine and was in it for a minute before she popped off like this. Um, so it's similar to, you know, Miley. Even Selena and Demi, like, mm -hmm. yeah. It's the pop punk pipeline, like. Yeah, and I think John Caramonica mentioned this in the New York Times review of it. This is so different from those girls because Olivia has a direct line to her fans that the Disney girls had never had before, right? They were all funneled into the system. And Olivia has um, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram. None of the other Disney girls had that. So she's able to take some slight more control of her image than someone would before. Maybe a bit compared to... Uh, Miley, because as we've stated, you know, like her dad was the executive producer of her show. Mm -hmm. You know, she didn't really get like caught up in the sauce. Mm -hmm. You know, she's not now attacking UFOs and frozen yogurt shops. <laughs> so I do want to point out though that uh, I like the pop your punk stuff. Brutal is a fucking amazing song. Mm -hmm. A lot of fun. Amazing. Also, brutal, great word. And I probably say it all yeah. the time on this podcast. I 
overuse certain things. Mm-hmm. A, a flashy sort of pop punk song that I think is that and good for you, I think are real hints of like what I want to see from her going forward. Because it's expressing her anger too as like a young woman in a really interesting way. And I think it is, I mean, no matter what age you are, like men ain't shit, right? But also so many of the emotions like feel also queer coded uh, and not just because um, a lot of these songs may be about a queer man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If they're still about Joshua Bassett, <laughs> who sort of came out. That was enigmatic. I don't know. Maybe. You know what? In 2021, you can just come out with um, putting colored hearts on Instagram. So <laughs> that's cool. You could have <laughs> asked him about it if he hadn't pulled out a keep it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> True enough. She also has that song, Hope You're Okay, at the end, which is like clearly about like a yeah. gay teen who is like cutting themselves uh, and that she mm-hmm. hopes is okay. I was happy to hear that song because, again, the content meta of the album is pretty uniform. Mm-hmm. It's coming from the same perspective all the time, which is fine, but she didn't really find super versatile ways to explain it. Like, I kind of did feel like I heard the same song three or four times. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree uh, with you. I want, I want to reiterate that I do think the album is no lower than a B minus, though. I think it's good. It's produced really well. I think that as far as she made a choice and she gave us a breakup album. Like every song is consistently like I kind of missed that where most most of the time people are trying to give you like a collage of different events and stories. And mm-hmm. this again, now that you bring up the queer coded album, I think of Tyler, the creator's Igor, where he takes on this whole character, this someone who's felt spurned because the man that he loves is with a woman. So it was reminding mm-hmm. me of of that, like giving me like a long narrative of how they experience this breakup and mm-hmm. the pain they went through. I also think that Olivia's 18. So she benefits from being able to just say what she's feeling without us having to like go through all this flowery language like some of the most powerful lyrics to me is when she's like how can you be in love with somebody else we just broke up we just broke up were you cheating on me and it's that essence that and anybody can relate to it any age like why am i 23 crying to this child's album why Mm-hmm. It really is a remarkable achievement for how fucking young she is. I mean, like, mm-hmm. w- in the age of Billie Eilish, maybe we've forgotten that it's totally rare we would get, like, a raw album from someone this young. But it is mm-hmm. super rare, and it's uh, accomplished. And I do want to point out that I think the lyrics are bomb, you know? And, I like, like um, I'm so sick of 17, was my fucking teenage dream? Like, that is a turn of phrase. Uh, and it's great to know that she is a writer, and I would actually compare – yeah, I love the Igor comparison, Aida, because I would actually compare it to uh, – obviously, she's a person who's influenced by Taylor, right? Uh, and I think that, you know, Taylor initially got, you know, a lot of the flack for, you know, like making songs about exes, you know, and a lot of the songs were a little similar, you know, but also she was a teenage girl writing these. Olivia seems more willing to acknowledge that, though. You know, I will say the one thing about Taylor that, like, that you always bump up against is, like – Whenever she's like refers to like referencing her own old songs that were about men, right, as like sexist or whatever, right, and it's like, okay, but girl, you were doing that, and you That's were, what you were pushing it in the media, and that was how you were getting famous. And there is a way to say, okay, that like you want my old shit, buy my old album, you know, and acknowledge that that's what you used to do, but now you're an adult and you don't need to do that shit anymore because you're making it on your own merits. But there is just sort of a weird way that Taylor sort of like tries to pretend that that didn't happen. Like, mm-hmm. you can't men and black us, girl. <laughs> I want to also say that compared to Taylor Swift, I think she does something I, I prefer, which is 
the heartbreak in her songs is not ambiguous. As Aida said, not only is she straightforward about it, but like I can tell what the situation is. Whereas with Taylor Swift, I feel like she's always like swirling around what really happened, and you're just supposed to be swept up in the dramatics of it without really knowing what went on. And I always feel like mm-hmm. it's like she's pretending she's getting into the specifics of heartbreak, but in fact, just kind of baiting you with the idea of it. Whereas this is like, I hate you for this reason right now, which is refreshing. Mm-hmm. You know. she, I mean, it's like, she, it's like she's got some teen therapy. She knows why she's mad. I really love the song Jealousy, Jealousy with the line, yes. comparison is killing me f- slowly. I think I think too much about kids who don't know me because like the other half of the album too is about what she thinks that she should be presenting herself as to the public, but also like, what a teenager should be, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think she's got a really cool handle on that. I like a lot of the lyrics, and I think that, like, she's really going to grow into a fantastic artist. I mean, it's just fun to listen to. Yeah. Truly, just for a moment, want to acknowledge the level of control this young girl has over her voice, Mm -hmm. the way she, like, can riff quietly. I mean, I heard so many Lord influences, Billie Eilish influences in this project. It was almost undeniable. Mm -hmm. Taylor Swift on Good For You, like, giving us that melancholy, acoustic, clear vocals. Mm -hmm. And I also really, really appreciate the lyric, who am I if not exploited? That she mm-hmm. says in Brutal. I just like remember feeling a pang of like, wow, it's not often we get to to hear a young woman in Hollywood or in the music industry immediately at such a young age be aware of their of their role and how people view them as a business, especially someone who is such a wildfire of a pop culture phenomenon as Olivia Rodrigo. Well, you know, she's in the Disney game, baby, you know? And Ben. <laughs> if you say the wrong thing about Palestine, they will call you Mark Ruffalo and say send out a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really glad, you know, she's here. And to bring up the Igor thing again, you know, I think that she has a handle on sort of like really personalizing these songs, but also making them universal in an interesting way where I don't know if she'll have to go that Igor route or like she could definitely because she seems like a great storyteller, but I don't know if she has to go that route yet. Like sort of the way how like I think that Taylor Swift really came into her own as an artist with folklore and evermore right because a lot of her albums were you know what we talked about in the past and then it was sort of chasing some pop trends with like reputation and things which is Mm -hmm. still my fave but obviously she talked about how folklore and evermore was so freeing because she was wasn't writing personal stories anymore like she was just storytelling you know and giving you sufjan you know but i don't think olivia needs that third person i think she's like she's she's giving you first person narrative on this album I also think mm-hmm. her SNL performance was better than expected. It's it's always weird when somebody who has like such a full studio sound actually recreates it in a live performance. Like, wow, you, your voice really does sound like that. Yeah. It's, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Overall, we're impressed with her. Come through. Come through, Olivia. We're impressed. Yes. We're really impressed. Yeah. I think the best comparison is Avril. Yeah. I think Avril, it's the same kind of like mm-hmm. almost pouty angst, but also like powerfully so, you know? Yeah. I mean, my favorite Avril album, her second one, Under My Skin, mm. that one is the pure like mm. rock, rock, rock. And that also has um, the first single was called Don't Tell Me. And I think that's such a hilarious mm. genre of pop single which is the prude anthem <laughs> i'm talking about taylor dane don't rush me i'm talking about mm. kelly clarkson i do not hook up. i do not hook up <laughs> yeah uh for such a gay icon what a homophobic song 
<laughs> Quite. <laughs> Don't try to tell me what to do. I do not hook up. I'm looking for friends on Grindr. <laughs> okay, ma'am. Right. <laughs> Kira Diaguardi wrote that one. We always have a bone to pick with her. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to come on this show once and you will confront her. Get ready. Is that your fifth thing, Lewis? The idea of Kara Diaguardi? Sure. I'll, just, I'll call that my fifth thing. Okay. Well, when we're back, Juliana Margulies... Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain Mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today is a television legend. She is one of the most awarded actresses around with three Emmys, eight SAG Awards, and you might know her from her iconic starring roles as Carol Hathaway on ER and Alicia Florick on The Good Wife. But now she is also an author. Please welcome Juliana Margulies to talk about her fantastic new memoir, Sunshine Girl, An Unexpected Life. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. And thank you for such a delicious, yeah, memoir, which, uh, yeah. now I'll say this. I am a big fan of the celebrity memoir, but sometimes I read memoirs of like my favorite people and they just don't bring it or it's only stuff I already knew. And you really went just deeper than I expected you to go. And I was wondering, you said in other interviews that this was maybe the most vulnerable making process you've ever been through. Why was that? What was the hardest part of writing this book? This isn't a tell-all celebrity memoir. This is about my crazy childhood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it was really hard to pick and choose <laughs> which parts I wanted to include um, and which parts didn't need to be in there. You know, I kept getting asked by my publishers, you know, could you talk a little bit more about what it's like to win an Emmy and things like that? And I said, guys, 
That's, you got the wrong girl. You know, if you want me to write this book, I want to make it as truthful and honest as possible. And I also, I felt obligated to show my journey because I know how lucky I've been and how fortunate I am. And I, I know that what it looks like on the outside seems so, you know, Hollywood glamorous. But when you are just a regular human being, as we all are, I think it's important to show all the the hurdles you go through to get to where you're going and that I'm just regular and human. And I wanted people to see that no matter what your circumstance is, you can get through things. You can move forward and define your own life. And when you become an adult, I think it's really important to know that you have the power to change that narrative that you had as a child. And I know it's hard and it takes hard work, but it's incredibly rewarding once you let go of your past story about yourself and allow yourself to still have that story be a part of your life because that's who you are, but to be able to go past it and make up your own story as an adult. As children, we feel so powerless mm -hmm. and we go along with the ride. And as adults, I think it's very difficult to let go of the story and say, no, actually, that doesn't feel good. I want to do this now. I want my life to resemble this, which is why the subtitle is an unexpected life because I never in a million years dreamed I could have the life I have now. Mm -hmm. What's also interesting is you have a chapter where you discuss uh, leaving ER uh, and you discuss, you know, the um, sort of um, drama, the everything that was surrounding that, right? You know, and I find it interesting not even to rehash all these things, but, you know, like you've left ER and then you left Good Wife, and I felt like you were an actress who has had to deal with like sort of like public gossip or whisperings around things that happen on shows you've been on. And how <laughs> does that affect you as a person who's like, you know, reading this, it's like you're you're an actress. And it's so interesting to hear, you know, you leaving ER because it's like, I want to go back and do theater. I wanted to work with, you know, someone whose work I respected. Um, whereas most people would be like, you're on a network TV show for years, like she's in it for the money, you know? She's not like, they're not thinking of you as an quote unquote actress. How hard has it been doing something like that that you love, but then also having to struggle with these public narratives that feel like they're out of your control? Was that why helping the book was cathartic? Yeah, I mean, I didn't write the book because I feel any um, animosity from the public of how they've feel about me. Um, that, that wasn't at all um, in my mind. Mm -hmm. What was in my mind was expressing that there are other things aside from money mm -hmm. to make you happy. And at a certain point, you really do. In the beginning, I cared a lot what people thought. You know, when I first left ER and there was all this backlash, I was just mortified because I had everything planned out and I, I, you know, back then the internet wasn't as crazy as it is now. And to be honest with you, I don't, I mean, I do Instagram reluctantly. I just started it a year ago. I'm not on any social media platforms. And the last thing I do is read about myself mm -hmm. because everyone has an opinion. And if you take in everyone's opinion, you're actually not going to be your true self. You're always going to be worried about what someone's thinking. And I can't give people that power over me because, um, of course, I always want people to respect and like me, but I don't have the power. A lot of people aren't going to like me just because of, I don't know, the way I look or, you know, uh, the fact that I didn't take the $27 million. You know, they, they have opinions and they're entitled 
to those opinions. For sure, I'm a public figure. I get it. But it can't define who I am. Mm -hmm. And I grew a nice thick skin after that ER situation. And I wrote about it in the book because I wanted to explain my side of the story the same way I needed to confront my father when I was an adult and pregnant. And I, I read all these letters that I had written to him when I was an 11 and 12 year old, when I was not in a good situation. I had to confront him to say, why? And when he told me his side of the story, I really could understand him. There's such a human aspect to asking questions and then being able to forgive and move on once you find it out. Because the same way as I think fans look at celebrities is um, their domain sometimes, right? You know, they think, Mm -hmm. well, I own that because I watch Mm -hmm. you because you're this big in my living room every week. You're tiny. (laughs) And I'm watching you in my house coat while I'm eating popcorn Suddenly you become, I've seen it actually with with my movie star friends. I've seen how, um, I remember doing a movie in Australia with Glenn Close. It was Paradise Road, a Bruce Beresford movie that I think is a- I love mm. Paradise Road. Mm-hmm. Thank you, one mm. of four people who saw it. God bless you. Um, <laughs> but it is a beautiful film. And I remember walking in Sydney with Glenn and ER what that was the second hiatus that I had of ER. So ER had been a huge global hit, right, for two years. And Glenn Close, I mean, at that point was still, I mean, has always been, you know, this incredible, huge movie star. People didn't go up to her because she was on a screen that was 25 feet big. Mm. But because I was in their living room once a week, every week for 22 weeks straight, and I was part of a story that they were very connected to, They could come up to me, talk to me, touch me, you know, tell me what they thought of me. (laughs) But they left her alone. And there was something about that. It's changed now because obviously movie stars have realized how amazing television is. And especially women have realized that's where the great roles are. So now it's a very different um, story. You know, the the landscape of television and movies now is sort of one and, and the same with streaming services and whatnot. But back then, I guess that was 1997, maybe? But I realized then how how people really thought they could relate to me on a much different level than her because she was a movie star. Mm. Um, and so it's a very, and I think I think soap opera um, actors. I've read some articles where soap opera actors get it even worse than than yeah. s- series television. Oh, totally. I bet I'm the resident soap opera fan here, uh, <laughs> and that was even thinking about that um, just from. Um, Hearing stories, and I, I have friends who've been on like Days of Our Lives and things. Um, the the way that like watching that person every day, uh, every day, you always days hear a week. like no yeah. people go up to you and scream at you for what you quote unquote did on the show. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. So there's and and by the way, it's such a compliment as an actor because it means that you are um, bringing them on this journey, and they truly believe you are that character. So it's it's a great compliment. But um, but I think the line gets drawn with what size you're being seen on, you know, yeah. what, mm-hmm. what screen size it is. You actually just you actually just clarified something for me, which was that whole period when you had left ER. There's a moment where you talk about watching Barbara Walters on The View, and she says specifically, "Who does she think she is?" Which is crazy to me because you would think what the who does she think she is moment would be if you asked for $270 million as opposed to I am just walking away from this. So it's, right. I think, but I think you're saying like, 
people found you so relatable that you would do one thing they didn't do felt like a betrayal in some way. That's so interesting to me. That's so strange. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, that whole story, um, the ER story. And when I saw the view, just, I mean, they, they really raked me over the coals on that show. Hearing, uh, Barbara Walters say, who does she think she is? She's no spring chicken. She's mm. 32 years old. <laughs> Near death. Yes. <laughs> that, that would never happen now. Because women have spoken up and the, and also social media is, a, you know, there was no social media back then. So that would never happen now, for sure. Mm-hmm. But to be a woman and to have felt like I had succeeded at what I had wanted to do. And now, because of those six years that I had spent on the show, that I could go and do my what I other things it wasn't a no brainer once the money was in it, but before the money came around, that was always had been my plan. Money is an interesting agent in decision making Mm -hmm. because uh, listen, I love having money. I love making money. I really do. I enjoy it. I know that at the end of the day, when I die, I'm not going to leave this planet with money in my pocket. I'm going to leave this planet with my heart and my spirit. And I have to say to myself, did you do everything you wanted to do? I don't want a bucket list. I want to do those things. I, I want to grab those opportunities. And for some people, and I really understand it, those opportunities mm-hmm. might just be get as rich as you can. And that's fine. I don't judge it at all. For me, it wasn't. So the people who were the of the opinion that money's the idea of happiness got angry at me because I was saying no to something they would never say no to. And it was a good lesson for me. In the book, you discuss, you know, the backlash you got from that. But I'd love to know, actually, if there was anyone uh, who surprised you post that ER decision, maybe another colleague, you know, or years later, someone who actually said that that was inspiring to them. And you were surprised by that reaction. Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking that question. No one has asked that question. I appreciate it. Um, yes, it, it has happened on numerous occasions. And it especially happened, I have to be honest with you, mm-hmm. um, during the success of The Good Wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People came out of the woodwork to say, I always admired your decision to go and do off-Broadway and what you wanted <laughs> to do and walk away. You know, But of course, there I was on another hit show by the luck of, you know, stroke of luck. I mean, that I got that is remarkable. But for me, the most important moment was I went off to Lincoln Center to do this play and I was coming out of the stage door one night and this beautiful Chinese student, medical student, was standing at the stage door and she said, she was trembling and she had tears in her eyes and she said, so this was about not quite a year after I had left ER. Mm -hmm. And she said, "Um, I needed to see you to tell you, you inspired me to live my life dream. And my life dream is to become a doctor and to go to medical school in America, which is what I'm doing now. But my parents didn't want me to. They wanted me to take over their the family business and learn the business. And they would not support me going to America. And when I heard you walk away from that money, I knew if you could do it, I could do it. I threw my arms around her and I said, you have no idea what that means to me. Because if I can inspire one person to go with their heart, then I feel... Like I've had some some success, um, so that that was really telling. But George was always George Clooney was always so you know at first he was like, man, you've got balls, 
you know, he, he was already a huge movie star at that point. So he didn't need to stick around for the money. You know, he was making that money. He was one of the only people who right away said, good for you, Juliana. Good for you. Um, and then they all started to. Um, now I, I don't feel like anybody would really uh, hold it against me. I think they're sort of more, I guess, shocked. But I don't think anyone would hold it against me. But we're living in very different times now, too. Mm-hmm. Now, this mostly pertains to The Good Wife, but I guess also ER, based on uh, what I remember of your work on that show. You're, what I love watching from you is tete-a-tetes with other actors. Like, you have such a steady intensity that works so... It's so compelling. It's like... I, I would compare it to Marsha Gay Harden or something. Like, the, <gasps> it's just comfortable power. I, do you have favorite actors you've had, like, kind of sparring matches with on the small screen? Oh, I've had... I mean, The Good Wife was such an embarrassment of riches because, because we shot it in New York... We had all of Broadway at our fingertips. Every Broadway star. I always knew on Mondays it would be because that's their day off. So um, (laughs) I never knew which stars were going to be there. And I'd walk into the makeup room and just think, look at at what I get to do with all these incredible people. Um, There were so many. David Hyde Pierce and I had such a great connection. And working with him was so much fun. And then, and I have to say, Michael J. Fox, there were moments where we would both forget our lines because our eye contact, we were so in inside the scene with each other um, that I would forget what my lines were. And sometimes actually Robert and Michelle would be like, actually that, we kept that in. We didn't edit it out because it was so great. It was just this silent moment, but we all knew what you were thinking. Um, and then I had this one, you know, Jeffrey Tambor, who I do think is a brilliant, brilliant actor. He was playing a judge. And the judge's role, I thought, was very, very difficult. We had, I mean, Dennis O'Hare, all of them were just incredible. B.B. Newworth, every, every single judge, I would just watch. And he had this huge sort of end of the scene monologue. And me and Christine Bransky and Josh Charles were in front of the, in front of the bench. And he did his close up. And then he did it again. And then he did it again. And they said, cut, we have it. And he, we were always joking on the set and he said to Josh, what'd you think of my performance? And, you know, Josh said something clever and, and funny and, you know, well, you could have done this and you could have done that. And Christine, you know, the same thing. But I, I was so taken by the performance and I said, honestly, I just thought, how lucky am I that I get to watch a masterclass in acting? And I know it sounds corny, but every day, I mean, Nathan Lane, I, I would watch him and crack up a lot because he, uh, uh, Margot Martindale. Oh, oh my God. She's like I, the fuck yes of all time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, I would, I, I, I remember, uh, we had a great scene. It was outside of the, the tour bus and I, I was wearing sunglasses. I was pissed off. I didn't want to be going on this tour with, um, my husband to get him to be governor or whatever it was. And she and I had this great scene and I was so glad they'd put me in sunglasses because apparently I was angry and I didn't want pictures taken. I forget exactly why, but I could not keep a straight face. Like finally at my close up, I said, Margot, do not look at me. Just don't look at me. And we would just start <laughs> laughing again. She was so much fun. I mean, I, I would do anything with her. I, all of these actors are just, they're miracle workers to me. And that I got to work with them was, you know, it, it was a great job. I got to be in New York, and then I got these master classes in acting every every day. Mm-hmm. 
And also, if there was a Nobel Prize in casting, it would have to be for guest roles on The Good Wife. I mean, just right True. Down, yeah. like Carrie Preston. I mean, like uh, uh, oh, uh, God, all the judges. Yeah. You had Jane Alexander on, one of the great yep. actors. Just all those yep. wonderful people. I, I, I remember this great, it was a four-day court scene. Court scenes were always very difficult because you it's a lot of coverage, right? You have to get the, the jury and the 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 defendant and the witness box and the blah, 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 all these, and the defense table, the prosecution. And um, my opposing lawyer was Brian Dennehy. Mm. And it was four days. And I always felt terrible for the guest stars because it's the kind of lingo after a while, you just, your brain is a muscle and you just learn it and know it. And when guest stars would come in, I would just feel terrible for them because it's really hard to learn. And Brian Dennehy, we finally got through this difficult four day scene and they said, that's a wrap on Brian Dennehy. And we all clapped our hands. And he came up to me and put his huge hands on both of my cheeks and said, kid, whatever they're paying you, it's not enough. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard. <laughs> I love Brian Dennehy. Uh, I like had the pleasure of like seeing him in this one act play that Eugene O'Neill wrote. The title's escaping me at the Goodman in Chicago once, but oh, such wow. an amazing actor. Yeah, uh, and I also want to say that like one thing that was so rewarding about the book too is that I just got your generosity of spirit of being excited to work with these people, but also like excited about the people who inspired you and helped your career along. Uh, I like because yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that like when you talked about um, the senior um, playwright who had written that um, play where you played the queen. Uh, oh yeah, David Grimm. Book, David Grimm. David Grimm. David yeah. Grimm was my um, playwriting professor at um, Tisch for grad school. Are you kidding? Loved David Grimm. Yeah, he that like is was when I was writing my playwriting thesis. Oh my god, that what a small world. Yeah, he he wrote me such a juicy, beautiful part, mm. and that that part sort of catapulted my my college theatrical. I guess it's sort of when people realized I was serious. Mm -hmm. um, but he wrote me such a delicious part. And I actually remember David Grimm, when we finally wrapped the show, you know, you only had like three or four nights to do the whole show. Mm -hmm. And I do remember, I remember him sitting on the stage in the dark and he was crying. I was like, David, you're going to write <laughs> another play. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did he have Did he have his um mustache then? Uh, no, he actually did not. Okay. Yes, he has a very for people who don't know him. He has a very dramatic, like sort of twirled mustache now, or at least oh, he, he did when he, taught, when he taught me. Yeah, with and what ginger because he's a ginger head. Yeah, he had this ginger hair, and he was and these beautiful big eyes, and he yeah he mm -hmm. he gave me a real gift with that role. Yeah, he was a really great professor who really just sort of like would read your work and be like okay now this is fun but make it messy and big uh right definitely inspired me to um i need to feel like i need to send him a letter uh now i, I do too now book. thank you yeah. i know <laughs> i should send him the book i don't know where he is i'll find him yeah <laughs> also you've just reminded me that the Good Wife was filled with such difficult lingo. And so, of course, was ER. I feel like most other acting jobs must feel like a cinch to you because you have to like <laughs> go at auctioneer speed with all of this like professional jargon when you're doing acting uh, on your two most famous projects. Yeah, I, I have to say, um, I just did um, six episodes on The Morning Show. Oh, yeah. And mm. it was like being on vacation. 
to pay a journalist, <laughs> you know, to have three days to learn one scene. I mean, and none of it's none of it's legalese or medical jargon. I mean, it, it was really fun for me. Um, but the hardest, at least with legal speak, I can understand what I'm saying if I if I you know, and also I'm I'm married to a recovering lawyer, so I could ask him. Um, his, you know, what, what does, I didn't know what voir dire meant, like all the things that I didn't want to have to look up. I could just, you know, say, Hey honey, what does this mean? But with medical stuff, you don't know really what you're saying. Um, but the hardest thing I've ever done is scientific dialogue. Mm. When I played, um, an infectious disease specialist on the hot zone, Mm. learning Mm. that language, uh, that, that nearly killed me. That was impossible to learn. None of it made (laughs) sense. Mm. Brutal. So yeah, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to playing just regular people who aren't in the medical profession or or lawyers. Although I do love mm. playing a lawyer, I have to be honest. And one day I'd mm. love to play a judge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before you go, I mean, I I really want to congratulate you again on this book, but also a question I want to ask uh, is. You, there's there's a lot about an ex boyfriend um, who then later comes out. Um, and it's, uh, you, you also describe, you know, that 10 year period where you didn't talk because you broke up with him. And during that period, you know, he discovered that he was gay, he was able to come out and then you had a boyfriend then. Uh, I just want to know like how that conversation went, you know, like even asking him one to like share his story in the book too. But like, um, as a person who, um, is really sort of into, um, friendships and our connections with people, you know? And, uh, I mean, I love that you talked about being a Gemini in the book because it's Gemini season. Um, <laughs> you know, um, how do you, it was so interesting hearing about just how you were able to repair a 10 year rift in a relationship like that. Um, and uh, you know, it's just like, it seems like you would have a whole other book on great advice for people on, um, putting in work to have um, just lasting um, friendships that are meaningful. Yeah. So, and Alec, Alec um, who we're talking about is my, my dear friend to this day. I mean, I see him, I had lunch with him yesterday. I mean, we see each other all the time, but uh, for me, uh, he was always that person who was my dearest friend. Even when we were boyfriend and girlfriend and lived together, we were just the best of best of friends. It wasn't a very sexual relationship. And when I was writing the book, I asked him his permission. And I said, I really want to write this book. And it wouldn't be truthful if it wasn't, if you weren't in it. And I don't have to put you in it if you feel uncomfortable with that. And he goes, honey, put me in it. I don't care. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And one of the things that happened, um, I think, first of all, he, you know, it's very hard to come out, especially when your family doesn't know. And, you know, he, he, his mother, I was very close to his mother, Gloria, and she, um, as long as I was his girlfriend, he wasn't gay, mm. right? So, and he had two older brothers, um, both very straight and macho, you know, so it was hard for him, um, even though I saw it, uh, pretty much right away. I mean, that's the first thing I thought about him. Mm -hmm. But as long as I was his girlfriend, he wasn't gay. And he liked that narrative for his survival, I think, for his family too. So I understood why he didn't answer my calls. I hurt him badly. And even though he ultimately came out in the end, I understand that. And I loved him so much that every year on his birthday, I called. 
And in that 10th year, when he was in a solid relationship, living in Los Feliz with a guy, and he could say, this is who I am, I think gave him the courage to answer the phone because the truth is he missed me just as much as I had missed him. But what was extraordinary was when he said to me, I need to tell you, (laughs) I need to tell you something, I'm gay. I said, yeah, I know, you know, (laughs) of course you're gay. That's why I couldn't keep going with you. And yay, good for you. I hope you're living a beautiful, fulfilled life. And I'd love to meet your boyfriend. And as luck would have it, he and I actually had a very funny moment where, so I was single at the time, the first time in my life. And the boyfriend that he introduced me to, he they broke up. And I had this guest house. I was living in LA in Santa Monica and I had this guest house. And I said, well, come and live in my guest house. You know, I mean, how fun we're going to have. And so we, we would have these crazy parties and cook all the time together. He's, he's a great cook. And my friend Bill, um, part of the threesome that we were in college, um, Bill and Alec, he would always be there. Anyway, there was some nights where he would go to the guest house and I could see him from my bedroom window across the courtyard. <laughs> and we would talk on the phone. <laughs> and I finally said to him, we're turning into Will and Grace. Like we are never, <laughs> ever going to find our mates if we continue to live in L.A. together. Like this is insane. We're, we're talking to each other and you're right there. I'm looking at you. <laughs> and that's when we both were like... Maybe we need to move back to New York. Let's let's move back to New York. <laughs> so we both did. And he and and his husband, David, I mean, we're all just like one big crazy happy family. But um he met David, I think, ten months after I met my husband. Wow. Mm. And we've all been together that that long. Yeah. So it's a happy ending. Well, I love that story. And I mean, yes, I really just love the stuff about friendship and like food and cooking. You need to make that uh I think Nora Ephron has a lost book that was like a cookbook, but also had essays and things in it. We maybe we need that from you. Oh, I love her so much. Yeah, she she was a master at that stuff. I don't think I'm that good. I cook because I love to, but I don't. I'm I haven't mastered it yet. I need I need to take a few more. You know, I'm a perfectionist. Yeah. <laughs> I have to get better. <laughs> But there are a couple dishes I have I have perfected. I had a friend, um, she passed away, but Natasha Richardson, Oof, who, one, of the greats. one of the greats, she did it like no one else. And um, her place, we're in upstate New York near Hudson, and her place was in Millbrook. And she used to have these parties where everyone would sleep over. And the dinners were always unbelievable. And then we would all go to bed late after a crazy night of game playing, running charades, whatever. And then the next morning, there she'd be looking fresh as a daisy with home-baked bread, freshly squeezed orange juice, pastry. Like everything had been homemade and I, I don't think she ever slept. And I would look at her and go, I don't, I can never copy this. How are you doing this? She was masterful. So sadly, when she passed away, I was the only other friend up there. There's a whole group of us who likes to cook. And I've never, ever been able to live up to her standards. So... I try to just do it once in a while so they kind of think that I'm really good, but I'm not that good. It's just because most of my friends up there don't cook. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, I loved it. It was awesome. Thank you for having me.
And now I get to think about the majesty of Natasha Richardson a little bit more. Very exciting. Now I'm, I'll get I on know. a Van- Vanessa Redgrave wiki kick. Oh, It'll be yeah. great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she was one of I'm going to go listen to Cabaret right now. Yeah, why happen. not? Uh-huh. Great version. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Julianne. Sunshine Girl, An Unexpected Life is out now wherever books are sold. When it comes to scents, you should pick ones that smell like, well, you. Target gets it, which is why they offer a range of personal care products with fragrances for everyone. Be true to floral you with Dove Peony and Rose Body Wash. Live your fresh life with Degree Ultra Clear Deodorant. Express your decadent side with Love Beauty and Planet Coconut Shampoo. This spring, choose care that brings you joy beyond labels. Pick up new favorites at a Target near you or online at Target.com. Imagine the ideal professor, someone at the top of their field, maybe a MacArthur genius, maybe a Pulitzer or Peabody winner. Maybe if you're lucky, they're an alumna too. New York Times journalist and 1619 Project Mastermind, Nicole Hannah-Jones, was all of these things when UNC Chapel Hill revoked their offer of a tenured professorship after its conservative board took issue that Nicole does not believe black people arrived in this country on a carnival cruise. <gasps> a gasp, yes. Gasp. 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 I'm, I'm honestly, <laughs> both. <laughs> they must be out of their damn minds. I would like to see other professors at that school. I'd love to know what they've accomplished. And peer-reviewed papers at JSTOR do not count. I just want to know, what, what were they thinking? I want to see the receipts. I want to see. I just want to know. Yeah, has anybody else written like a, a project of that scale that like literally everybody I know has at least paid attention to or clicked through online? You know, how rare is that? Mm-hmm. And I want to point out that like this is all part of the like conservative drama surrounding critical race theory, you know, which is sort of like a new buzzword on Fox News, um, which is. I don't know, making making white parents think that like we're just teaching students that white people are bad, which they are. So which, yeah. I'm okay with it. <laughs> but that's a secondary point. Yes, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but it's so interesting to me. So like because when I was um home recently, uh I was hanging out with uh, a best friend from high school who is a teacher, mm-hmm. you know? Uh and he was like yeah, I'm literally about to go into a meeting with like um, a bunch of parents who are mad about their high school students learning like critical race theory. And uh, I have to follow up with him because the question was basically like he wants to ask them, please explain to me what about critical race theory actually upsets you. And I don't think that any of the people who are mad about it, who are being fed this thing on Fox News right now actually know what the fuck it is Mm -hmm. or how it's different from what they were learning before you know so it's like all they know is that it says you know like black people good white people bad tree pretty (laughs) (laughs) you said something true about trees (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. they do be pretty 
I love a Sequoia. Yeah, the basis for a lot of this rancor is the fact that this woman, Nicole Hannah-Jones, is basically centering the country's history around the consequences of slavery and basically saying it's uh, the U.S.'s sort of... Um, Whitewashing? ...main foundational moment. Uh, which, who, who would deny that? Do you not think that's like a very specific and... Um, telling part of our country's history. It's like people want to believe that because there were some good white people at some time who did some good things, that this other thing can't be true. It's like people are super worried that the goodness of white people is being erased in some way, which is stop clinging to the goodness, damn it. Stop it. (laughs) Listen, I mean, I know Thomas Edison did some work. He put in some work, but maybe he was a bitch too. See? (laughs) And we should know. <laughs> we should know this, okay? Uh, I think part of the problem, too, is like, and we can speak to this as people who've gone through the American school system, right? There is such a, you must get such whiplash. It must be harder now to be a teacher because I remember us, right? Like, we're in grade school and we're being told stories about happy pilgrims mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and like, like happy, um, Indians, they weren't even Native Americans yet. Like, I feel like when we were in, I feel like when I was in third grade, that was like, you know, when schools were finally starting to be like, maybe we should call them Native Americans. I remember that having that, you know, like disagreement with people, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're in school and you're making like projects around Thanksgiving about pilgrims and Native Americans and like happy Thanksgiving, like how then all of a sudden, like later do you tell students, uh, oh yeah, by the way, like, that was like a genocide. But we, we wanted you to be happy about Thanksgiving when you were a kid. Now you're an adult. Uh, yeah, then Pilgrims just like straight up killed some people. <laughs> it's like, welcome to 11th grade A push. Trail of Tears happened. Figure it out, young child. And I remember being <laughs> so jarred and disgusted with the world around me. And like, why is there an expansion pack to American history right now? Can you guys have just told me the, the shit at the beginning? Uh, very frustrating. Again, yeah, very whiplashy. I I also remember us not speaking ever, ever about slavery until I was in late high school. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. It certainly don't alert you to the fact that many of the American heroes and people you are studying in history class own slaves. Mm -hmm. I I will never forget, uh, this kind of went viral a couple years ago, but you know the game show, sorry, Double Dare from the 80s with Mark Summers on Nickelodeon? No. Oh, you know I know Double (laughs) Dare. Actually, I do, I do. I do, I do know Double Dare. (laughs) Come on, family Double Dare. (laughs) I'm just making sure. Um, They asked a question that was, what U.S. president who wrote the Declaration of Independence also owned blank number of slaves like named the number and i was like whoa so stop Uh, pretending that like there hasn't (laughs) been like mainstream knowledge about this sort of thing for years and years and i also want to add uh one of the my favorite comedies in the 90s adam's family values Mm. has a scene where they perform a thanksgiving pageant at their summer camp and Uh, it's it's supposed to be just like film yes iconic film super funny but it weirdly is a subversive and great scene because wednesday has to play Pocahontas at Thanksgiving, who of course was not there. And so it's sort of making fun of how stupid people are about historical events. Mm-hmm. And then she goes rogue and like sets the whole place on fire and it becomes this revenge fantasy on behalf of the Native Americans. But like there is actual anger there about how people perceive these kinds of historical events and how stupid they are to accept them as they're presented to them. Mm-hmm. I feel like we definitely had a lot of media that we consumed in our younger ages that was 
trying to do that, right? Uh, and now because of the proliferation of social media uh, and projects like this, you know, um, we're, we're having more open and honest conversations about them. And the problem is that before, you know, like people like to have them just swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel a huge frustration now knowing that, I mean, conservative people, the, the right side is always the most vocal. Like they're the zealots about cancel culture. But when it comes down to it, the people who actually experience the real ramifications of cancel culture are the people who are going to lose job opportunities and and lose access to financial resources because of the conversations that are being had. Of course, nobody's talking about cancel culture on the conservative side when it comes to this situation, but the inability to get tenured at a job where you're supposed to be there mm -hmm. is directly getting canceled. Yeah. That's the only time that this is actually happening. And the, the, the whole problem, too, with, like, like ugh, cancel culture, again, is uh, it is a thing, but we've now gotten to such an inane place. We've gotten to this and also Emily Wilder being fired by AP for voicing support for Palestinians. Mm -hmm. That is compared to a comedian losing a job for saying like a racist joke, right? Like mm -hmm. all of it swirls into the same thing and it's like you can't even discuss what cancel culture is and people who are actually being canceled and losing jobs when everyone wants to make it all like seem so stupid. Yeah. You know? It's like it's off the heels of like Joe Rogan complaining about like white men being silent, and it's like, bitch, more people listen to you than us, mm -hmm. and we're not silent or silenced. And now you're gonna get to go on like a triggered tour and make millions off of the fact that you were where you were quote unquote silenced in any way. Yeah, the only trigger tour I want to see is Trigger Trey. Okay. <laughs> Is it that you were canceled? Bottoms up, bottoms That's up. That's not true. I would never go see a Trey Songz concert. I do, I, I do love the song. Is it that you were canceled, Joe Rogan, or is it that you can't sell? Moving on. Uh, <laughs> uh, why don't we, why, why can we get that you, phrase Lewis. out in the mainstream? Thank anyway. You, no, I, as always, I feel like those two words are just a deflection, a, a way to deflect talking about what somebody has actually done mm -hmm. and actually investigating whether or not someone should be facing harsh or lenient consequences. Like, again, the idea that Harvey Weinstein and this woman might be under the same umbrella because they have been both canceled in some way is so insulting and so minimizing of the very hard discussions we're trying to have mm -hmm. that it makes me sick. It's so self-aggrandizing, too. Oh, totally. It's so egotistical, usually, yeah. That's what Ellen did, right? Like, she went straight to cancel culture. It, yeah. It's yeah. like you shouldn't be ready to invoke this as if it's something that's eating up the best of society or yeah. something. <laughs> and it's like, real tea, your show's getting canceled, Ellen, because nobody wants to go on it anymore. It's not a challenge for her. Because they've been on it 50 times. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's also, I mean, obviously, it's also bringing in the notion of what tenure is at, like, a college, you know? And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that much about tenure. <laughs> <laughs> this is the authority people come to this podcast for. I know. Okay, yeah, listen. We are bastions of scholastic. I know. I know sexy teen dramas. I know the inner workings of high schools, thanks to Boston Public. But where's the sexy <laughs> academic drama? There is so little college cinema. I'm not watching Grownish. Right, 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 right. I can't. Also, are there not like 70 spinoffs to that show at this point? My God. We can't yeah. do Ish that many times. I mean, there's they're already airing Fagish on Logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at least they got to Logo. Yeah. <laughs> and me and Rami are working on Halalish right now. So it's really just a devastating, <laughs> devastating world we live in. Uh, yeah, there is a dearth 
of entertainment set on college campuses. Undeclared? Yeah, undeclared. <laughs> undeclared was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed it. But canceled too soon. Just like our girl. Once teen shows go to college, right? Like that's usually a sign for um, the writers don't give a fuck about telling stories that sort of like Mm -hmm. resonate uh, or like are realistic anymore. Like once anybody goes to college on a show, uh, except for Gilmore Girls. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Once anybody goes to college, they are just sort of adults, right? (laughs) And you sort of see them walking around campus talking to each other, but it's never like stories, you know, about college. Greek. Actually, I would suggest Greek was a very good show. It's almost like I, it's the it's a plot point always where like the kid gets the letters and then it's like a DJ Tanner and then she goes off and we don't hear from her again. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's it. There's been the argument that it's because college is a less relatable experience than high school for most Americans. Mm. No, that yeah. makes sense. But it's just weird that when I think of definitive depictions of colleges in movies or whatever, okay, Animal House does come to mind. But after mm. that... When I'm thinking about the reality of campus life, the next example that comes to mind is Scream 2. That does mm. kind of convey the feel of a yes. large campus and running Horror from building film. to building. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I know what you did last summer. Yes. Get that acceptance mm-hmm. letter. Yeah, to Barnard. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you did last summer was actually about college acceptance letters. Mm-hmm. I had the I'm distinct sure feeling it wasn't. But it did have Anne Hirsch, yeah. so I did love it. <laughs> they were like, Jennifer, you didn't get in. <laughs> you were waitlisted. And that's why she screamed, what are you waiting for? Her backup college to, to get- call her. Yes. <laughs> Cornell, that Cornell email. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy Tufts. Yeah. Her stomping onto the Sarah Lawrence campus. <laughs> just, just fucking just sweating at Bryn Mawr. Fucking hate this this okay. <laughs> so disrespectful wow. to colleges for no reason. They're wonderful institutions. Girl, Actually. I went to the University of Iowa. I'll say whatever the fuck needs yeah. to be said. <laughs> it's time. It's time to wrap uh, this up. But I can't believe we had a whole discussion about colleges. Or sort I of. I didn't mention that I went to Tish. I well, here we are. Uh, here we are. And it's keep it again. <laughs> <laughs> We're just trying to get people the hits, okay? <laughs> Nothing but the hits. You know what they come for. <laughs> this and the accents that you clearly didn't learn at Tish. So. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, I learned them from my teacher of life, Nicki Minaj. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it is clear by, by usage of English accents or any of them are are directly because of fucking Roman. Being a barb. Zelensky. Yeah. yeah. Nicki Minaj, the other Bob Hoskins, a real master of dialect. <laughs> Between well, this and a Trey Songs reference, you are just the walking embodiment of, of Bottoms Up. Um, and I yeah. feel like we all need to recall that song and take a moment. <laughs> well, can I get that coat? Can I get that henny? Can I get that next seg seg segment? <laughs> when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Aida, what's good? 
it's <laughs> Mali was good. I feel as if <laughs> keep it sh- keep it should just be called which one of us bitches is going to complain about a reboot or a trailer. Mm. And this week it's a reboot. So I I just here I go again. Let me get redundant. Last year at the end of the year during Halloween, if any of us remember, Bette Midler had her annual Halloween fundraising event um, where she mm. brought back Sarah Jessica Parker and Kathy and Jimmy, and they did a virtual performance of Hocus Pocus. Mm-hmm. They, they kind of did like a mockumentary style. It was honestly fun, amazing. They really took advantage of the fact that it was quarantine production and we weren't going to fault them on any of the bullshit backgrounds that they used, but it was enjoyable. I believe, though, from this moment, somebody decided we need a Hocus Pocus 2. <laughs> I have so many mixed feelings. Most of them are, please don't remake this. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it because I hold Hocus Pocus in such a wonderful chamber of my heart. And a classic, a movie that I see. (laughs) So I repeat it every year since out of season. This is a vintage keep it, Paul. This is a vintage keep it. (laughs) What? Lewis. Lewis What? From like 2018. Fuck y'all. Keep it to Hocus Pocus. (laughs) Fuck y'all. I hate it too. I hate it too. We can revisit this really quickly. The three actresses themselves are great and perfectly cast, Wonderful. but I feel like they end up being like a fourth of the movie and it ends up being about this fucking kid and his sister. And it's like just way less entertaining than the poster suggests. That's my problem with Hocus Pocus. Boo. Boo to you guys and your opinions about this movie. I mean, maybe you'll agree with me then that we don't need a Hocus Pocus too. We have different reasons for why we don't need it, but I just don't think they're going to give us what they gave in the first movie. Like, I want corny theatrical blocking. I want a uncomfortable musical scoring. I don't want to see a modern adaptation. Like, I feel like I have a great understanding of what Immortal Witches were doing in 1993, but I don't know what they're doing in 2021, and I don't care to find out. I agree. Just put it away. Put it away. Well, they're actually going to add a new witch who is a... uh queer non-binary podcaster Black, yeah 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 yeah. this is <laughs> this is the deadline article i'm announcing my casting i'm a sanderson i eat a sanderson call me that <laughs> i agree I, it does feel like hocus pocus is perfect for like a, a cutesy 90s comedy and now it'll just mm-hmm. be way too slick mm-hmm. like special Mm-mm. effects that's already nauseating me boo boo didn't we already not see the witches oh right I, mm, I, I don't even have yeah. to forgive Anne Hathaway. I never saw it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, she owes me apologies for other things. So I'm still waiting. Lewis, I think you're mad about a remake too. I am. Sort of. <gasps> uh, it, yes, it's a prequel. Um, and I believe mm. we kind of knew this was coming because I associate oh. Timothy Chalamet with Wonka. It's already been in the atmosphere for some reason. I thought people kept talking about Janelle Monet doing something Wonka-y. Which, or was that just fan service? Good question. Well, I mean, she wears like suits with tails and so people threw her name into the basket. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting a Wonka prequel called Wonka and it's musical. Now, I'm pretty sure Timothy Chalamet is a good s- singer and dancer. I'm 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 somewhat interested in seeing that. That said, Have you not seen the videos of him at LaGuardia? Rapping? Perf- <laughs> rapping, performing Nicki Minaj? <laughs> uh, yes, I have. <laughs> Pull up in a Tonka color a Willy Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> Too much. But the bottom line is First of all, we had the Johnny Depp thing like 15 years ago, and I'm not going to call that an utter disaster. He made an attempt. I don't like it, but it exists. 
And it's just, this is such a perfectly 70s movie where it's like the drollness of Willy Wonka got to be really cruel. And that is very true to the spirit of Roald Dahl, who um, mm. created uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I just don't know that this generation can handle the kind of seriously unsettling Roald Dahlness to make this great. I just don't think we have it in us anymore. Mm. I think you're correct. I also don't want to learn that this character, Willy Wonka, has been zany and unhinged since childhood. Totally. I don't need mm-hmm. to see that creepy. I want to believe this happened somewhere during the maturation process. Like, as he got older, he became wild. I don't want to see him sad and, and off kilter so young. Totally. No. Nor do I want to see him go to, like, business school. Like, what is there to learn about a chocolatier? <laughs> well, maybe this is, like, Wonka's sixteen nineteen project. You know, we find out how he made those Oompa Loompa slaves. No, see, even that, don't. Please don't. Please don't ground this in reality. Please don't. <laughs> but the outfits are going to be cute. Timmy's going to serve. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. Oh, he, he will serve. Bitch. I know that. Willy Wonka's going to be wearing off-white and New Balance and Celine. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, it reminds me of how amazing Timothy looked in a purple blazer in Little Women, where I believe he gave the best performance. Mm-hmm. Mm. Even over the little women? I think so. Mm-hmm. I'm not prepared to be like horny for Willy Wonka, but no. I guess it's going to happen. Well, yeah. Oh, well, that's Ben. Okay. Ben. Okay. Yeah. Gene Wilder. I'm going to be a melted ass chocolate bar, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Just lapping it up. Who's scrumdedly? I'm shuss. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm about to blow up like Violet, okay? No. <laughs> I'm about to pop. <laughs> All right. Mike, I know that we were just nice to the teens earlier with Miss Olivia. Who you mad at? But my keep it this week is to this TikTok trend of fashion hauls. Mm. Oh. I am losing my goddamn mind. First of all, to explain what a fashion haul is, it is a TikTok that is usually like rapid jump cuts uh, showing someone like um, in multiple outfits in one video. You know, it's to show off, you know, like getting fashion from like fast fashion places or, you know, it's to really like a lot of people on TikTok, you know, just showing like they're, they're stylists, you know, like they, they're like really fashionistas. Uh, started on YouTube, really, and I thought that shit died. But basically is it's annoying for two reasons. One, obviously, because, you know, like it's the proliferation of fast fashion and it's like, um, you know, promoting a culture of you need to constantly have a new outfit on every day. Like there was a report in like Business Insider. It said like a lot of like Gen Z people like um, or people from like 18 to 25 too like are feeling like pressure that like they need to be seen in something new every day. Jesus Christ. Because of that, you know? And it's like we're past that era of like re-wearing like something, you know? And it's like you used to just see that on TV, but now it's like that now that every teen's a fucking influencer, you know, it's like you you feel like embarrassed if you're caught wearing the same thing again, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Get, get into pieces in your wardrobe that you can rewear, okay? Mm-hmm. Get into some blacks. Get into a cozy sweater. The other thing is these videos, when you're dropping like five looks in a video, what's the point of that then? Like if you're revealing a new outfit, like I want – you know, to, like, get the real compliments on it and people being like, ooh, you look good. Like, if it's there for 0.2 seconds, then you just wasted an outfit. Right. They need to get into the culture of borrowing each other's clothes more. Um, 
No one knows you don't own the clothes. Mm-hmm. I think this is the key to them. Anyway, that was my old keep it. I see why you're mad. I see why you're <laughs> mad. But also, it's just like giving the girls a lookbook, giving some of these girls ideas, and they didn't have ideas That's true. prior. It is that 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 is beneficial in the way. But I also. I, can't, I mean, the fast fashion is ridiculous. It's like you have to get a new wardrobe every season, and then we're just throwing away clothes. Yeah. I, you know, like, I don't think any of these people like take them to, like, a used clothing store or resell them on Poshmark or something. And you, I don't know. I think it's wasteful in many ways. It is. The fabric busts at the seams if you look at the dress for too long. Like, I can't. Yeah. It's a shoddy production. It's really difficult. I think, though, there is, like, a barrier to entry sometimes because the culture has supported fast fashion that they don't even realize that they're not they're not um, buying in an economical and smart way. They just, like, this is what we do. We were raised on Forever 21 and Charlotte Russe and all of these of horrible stores. So I feel, I feel like kids need some guidance, and it's just it's more of a capitalist system that they have to feed into at this point. Absolutely. Capitalism is the villain here, you know, but it's just like, and obviously you don't want to go to bed back to the era of people, like, having to save so much money to buy one outfit, but it's just sort of like, when you do spend money on, like, an outfit that's not, on, like, a piece of clothing that isn't, like, $21, mm-hmm. it does last longer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, these know? kids need to discover the um, seminal textbook called Doug, where the characters wore the same outfit all the time, and you <laughs> loved it. Patty Mayonnaise, <laughs> yes. it was polka dots again, sweetie. You know, uh-huh. Skeeter, Skeeter Valentine, we're going Brown. with... Yeah, you got oh Charlie Brown. He knew what he knew. Yellow, He's like, the it's chevron, one zigzag, the zigzag for me. Zigzag. It's just Bitch. a zigzag for me. Yeah, you know, yeah. Linus. Linus had an accessory, always the same one. A goddamn blanket. Up, oh, I've got an oral fixation thing. Comfort. Blankets in my mouth. Yeah. Comfort. Or you know what? Just go. Just go to a fucking restrictive Catholic. Yeah. School like I did, where you have to wear the same thing every day. That sounds like a pleasure. I think constantly showing off the same outfit should be the thing all these teens are doing. Like, up, oh, can you believe it? I'm wearing the outfit again. Like, that's That's irreverent. Smart. That's See? irreverent. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Did you hit it with the school uniform? Yes, I hit it with the school uniform. <laughs> all right. That's our show this week. Thank you to um, Juliana Margulies for joining us and thank you to the whiplash that I gave Gen Zers by complimenting Olivia Rodrigo's album and then complaining about a TikTok trend. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm in my 30s. Whatever will they do. Yeah. Go make All a right. TikTok. <laughs> we'll see y'all next week. <laughs> Keep It is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Caroline Reston and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. I think I've heard of him. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Stay safe. Be blessed. God loves you. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.